You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. It's, a, it's an honor to be back up here uh, and, and talking to you guys today and sharing God's Word. Um, so, yeah, I'm not Sean, as he said. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, so we're going to take a break from the series that Sean is doing through the book of Acts, but we're not going to venture too far off in that we're going to stay with the same author, namely uh, in the Gospel of Luke is where we'll be. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you may remember that Luke was a physician by profession, and he was also a colleague to the Apostle Paul and followed Paul throughout his ministry. So, and some, some of you guys know a little bit about me. Um, I, I do forensic engineering work during the week. Uh, and as a, a civil engineer, it's, it's important for me to have attention to details, even the, the smallest of details, if you will. Uh, so when I go and I inspect a structure, I want to get as much information on this structure as possible. So I'll start out by asking questions from the owners, you know, how long have they owned it? How old is the, the structure? Any repairs that they may have cha- uh, made or changes they may have made over the years? Uh, what their concerns are if there was a sudden event that, that caused some damage? And, and what their perception is of what they think happened. But then after I get all that information from them, I like to also have the structure tell me a story. Uh, and I like to see uh, on the outside, I look all around all the outside, I get on the roof, I'll go in the attic if necessary, I'll look at the doors and the windows to see how they are, they're aligned or misaligned. I'll look for cracks in the orientation and locations of that stuff, and I'll have the structure tell me a story of what's going on. And you see, people in general, their, their perception is, they look at just the general decor and the, the, the uh, exterior landscaping. They really don't take a magnifying glass and look at every square inch of their walls. They don't look to see if the floors are unlevel all the time. It's only after a sudden event, then their eyes become focused, and they start you know, looking at everything, looking for that smallest little crack, looking for that change in the floor that feels, doesn't feel right, or the misalignment of the doors and misalignment of the windows. And it, it may have been windows that they never opened, but now they're trying to open it, it doesn't want to work. So it's my job as an engineer to go through and discern, is this consistent with their perception? Is this consistent with a recent event? Or is it more consistent with something that's a long-term issue? And I say that because that's what I admire about Luke. See, Luke, one of the gospel writers, he didn't see Jesus firsthand. He actually read the accounts of Jesus as well, uh, kind of like us with, with the Bible. He had, he had the other Gospels. He had the Gospel of Mark that he was able to refer to. Uh, but he was in a unique position in that he was also able to interview people that were still alive that did see Jesus. So he was able to compare the written Word of God, the inspired Word of God, say from Mark and other Gospels and other writings, and then actually go out and interview people. You know, like, you hear stories of miracles in here, and he's like, hey, wait a minute. Let me go ask these people. So, did this really happen, or was it something like this? Huh, no, it actually really happened. And, and that's what we end up finding out, that after 
interviewing several people, reading all the accounts, he was able to confirm that this was true, that everything in, in the other writings and, and the account that he is writing is true. So if you're going to turn up, we're going to look at chapter 1 in Luke, verses 1 through 4. And this is what Luke wrote. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So just like Theophilus, we too as readers of the gospel uh, out of Luke can have that certainty, the accuracy of, of Jesus' uh, life on earth and, and what he's done. And so that, that's uh, what I really appreciate about, about Luke on that. So we can take this now, we're going to jump into Luke 8, and we can have that certainty of, of what Jesus was saying on, on life here on earth. But before I, I jump into reading this text, I also want to prepare you guys. Uh, specifically, I want to prepare your hearts. And I say that because this text can be very heavy uh, and, or weighty on our hearts. Um, so, because this is a warning that Jesus gave to everybody. It wasn't just to the people at his time, but it applies to everybody since that time and even people in the future. So if we're going to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 8. Otherwise, we're going to, you can see it on the screen back here, and I will start reading. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. <clears throat> and as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and then the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. <clears throat> the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes it away from, them, from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. All right, so right away we can see that uh, the scripture can be broken up into three sections. We have the parable itself, and then he explained why he speaks in parables. That would be the second one. And then we have the explanation of the parables. So I'm going to jump out of order. I want to jump into why Jesus spoke in parables. And I'll do that for a couple reasons. One 
It not only sheds light on why he spoke in parables for this specific parable, but also why he spoke in parables in general. And then once we get an idea of why he speaks in parables, then we'll go back and we'll touch on this specific parable. We'll talk about the parable, and then I'll tie it together with the explanation since they naturally go hand in hand. So I'm going to jump down to verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. All right, as I, and, and I mentioned before, Luke was taking writings from other gospel writers and the, the written account of Jesus. And then from that and the interviews, he formulated his letter to Theophilus. Uh, so what I want to do is I also want to give you guys a, a good, well-rounded view of this specific parable. So we'll be going to other Gospels as well as, as a comparative. And so we're going to jump to Matthew 13, verse 11. And again, it'll be up on the screen here. And he answered him, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So again, both Gospels are saying that Jesus gave the disciples permission to know the secrets. To you it has been given to know. That, that's because the, the disciples were chosen. And as such, being chosen, they were also chosen to know the secrets. And the them in that sentence, in both uh, the scriptures there, it applies to everyone in the crowd, whether it's just a, a normal person or even the spiritual Jewish leaders at that time. Before I continue on, though, I want to take a, a moment just to pause here and say, you know, we all know life is messy. It's full of uncertainty. It's filled with whys. You know, marriages can be destroyed. Family members can suddenly die, either from a car accident or a sudden health complication. Jobs are lost. Catastrophic storms occur, and thousands are wiped out. Or if you've been listening to the news recently, we have all these mass shooting scares going on. You know, and it, again, it leaves people asking why and wondering. You know, why me? Why him? Or why did I get cancer? Or why did that drunk driver survive and not my kids? You know, it's just life is a mess. Life is messy. From our point of view, life can seem random, chaotic, and just full of unanswerable questions. And there's probably going to be many more times throughout our lives where we're going to have that again. And we're not going to know why. We're not going to have the answers. It's kind of almost like looking at the backside of a cross-stitching. We can show that photo. So here we have a, the backside of a cross-stitching. You can see the threads, they're going in all kinds of directions. It's random. It's almost like there's no rhyme or reason why it is the way it is. And that's our life. That's our perspective. But from God's point of view, if we were to see the, the other side of it, we would see that it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's as it should be. It's perfect. So that's the difference between our perspective, what we see down here on earth, and what God's divine plan is for everybody. So I want to take this analogy and apply it here to when Jesus said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. See, what Jesus was doing there is he was giving the disciples a small snapshot of his greater plan of why things are happening the way it is. 
So parables in general, they're, they're like riddles. They have a, an inner deeper meaning uh, that is kind of hidden. So unless they have the explanation for it, it's going to be unclear. And while the analogy of planting seeds may have been a familiar concept to everyone at that time, the actual meaning that Jesus was getting at there was unclear. We're going to continue on in chapter 13, verse 13 of Matthew. And this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and this is from Isaiah. Indeed, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Or we turn to chapter 4 in Mark, verses 11 and 12, we get a little more concise paraphrase of that, and he says, And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So again, those texts, the paraphrases that's taken out of Isaiah chapter 6, 9, and 10. And when Jesus was speaking, them, speaking to them in parables, he was fulfilling that prophecy. But I want to ask the question, why? Why did he need to fulfill that particular scripture? Why did he have to be so cryptic? As it states, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Whenever I hear the word less, it, I always think of for fear that. So we could rephrase that and it could say, for fear that they should turn or for fear that they should be forgiven. That's a, that's a pretty weighty thought right there, for fear that they would be forgiven. What do we do with that? What would Jesus have to fear in allowing those Jews at that time in that crowd and at the times that he speaks in parables to understand? What would be the fear for them to see, to turn, to repent, and to be forgiven? In short, the answer is it would be, have disrupted God's divine plan. Again, looking from our own perspective compared to God's greater plan. Our perception of life is messy, but God's plan is perfect. So let me draw this out a little bit more. We're going to kind of zoom out from about a 30,000-foot-wide view and think about the main reason why Jesus came to the came to this world. I'm going to jump to Romans 3.23, and a lot of you may know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So see, we're, we're all sinners. And as such, because of our sin, we're separated by God, from God. And so that we, we are actually condemned to die because of that, and, and rightly so. That would be the right and just thing for God to do. But because of his love for us, he sent Jesus into the world to take our place, to bear our sins. But the only way he could do that, according to God's divine plan, was to have him sacrifice himself for us, namely on the cross. And as it states, and because he conquered death, he gives that free salvation. And that's stated in John 3, 16 through 18. We see that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the, he, the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We can look at another verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So again, resummarizing that, we're all sinners, we all deserve death and judgment, every one of us. But because of God's great love for us, his awesome love for us, he sent Jesus into the world to take our place, to be our substitution. But again, that, that required God to send Jesus here to die on the cross. And that had to happen as God had ordained it to happen and at the time that he had ordained it to happen. I just want to make one more point here and think about this. Jesus is God in flesh. So he is fully God yet fully man. If, if he spoke something clearly to happen, it happened. Actually, he doesn't have to say anything at all and still miracles happen. If we think about when he calmed the stormy seas, he basically re rebuked the seas and it calmed or it walked on water. Again, he was able to do that stuff by making it clear. Let's go back to, again to Mark, Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Again, for fear that they should turn, and for fear that they should be forgiven. So re-asking that question, why did he need to fulfill that prophecy? The answer should be coming clearer to us now. If Jesus did not speak in parables, if he did not speak in riddles, but rather spoke clearly to the Jews, they would have understood. They would have seen Jesus as the Messiah. They would have turned and repented, and ultimately they would have been forgiven. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, great, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that what we want? But that wasn't part of God's greater plan. In short, having them forgiven at that moment in time was neither part of God's greater plan or timing. See, if the Jewish people in the crowd, including the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ones that wanted to crucify Christ on the cross, if they would have realized he was the Messiah, there would have been no hatred there would have been ultimately no crucifixion. What would be the point of that? So again, because they would have repented and asked for that forgiveness had they realized. So as I stated, Jesus had to speak in parables. He had to keep the spiritual Jewish leaders from seeing who he truly was so that they would eventually crucify him on the cross as God had ordained. That's because God's sovereign will was so that salvation would become available not to just the few, but to the many. Or in other words, not to just the Jews, but to all of those that God had predestined to be chosen throughout the world in all nations. And let's talk about timing. If you were here during Sean's sermon series in Acts regarding the day of Pentecost, you may recall that 3,000 souls were saved. I'm going to quickly reread parts of that. This is Acts 2, 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
He's pointing to the Jews that crucified him. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, timing. After the crucifixion, after God's divine plan took place for Jesus to die on the cross, raise from the dead, and now paying the penalty for us, now those Jews can understand, now they can see, now they can turn and repent, and now they can be forgiven. All right, so that's kind of given us a general idea of why he spoke in parables, because it was part of God's greater plan for him to go to the cross and make it a wider salvation for the world. All right, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk about each parable and the respective explanation. And once I, once I do that, then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. So we're going to jump back to five, and this is in Luke. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Jumping to verse 6. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Going to verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Back to 7. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Jumping down to 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Finishing up an eight with a good soil. And some in, fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. All right, so this parable is kind of fitting for us here in, in Iowa since uh, we're in the land of corn and soybeans. Uh, and so if you have any experience with farming or growing gardens of vegetables and flowers and whatnot, it shouldn't stretch your imagination too much to understand the four different soil conditions and, and, and the effects of the seeds in those different soil conditions. So, again, it's clear we've got four different soil conditions, and that can be subdivided down into two groups. We have the bad soil, and we have the good soil. In the bad soil, we have those three different conditions versus the one good soil. So I'm going to stay in order here, and we're going to start with the, the three bad soils. But I, I also want to emphasize that the three bad soils are saying those are the true unbelievers. They're, they're not, they're, they don't believe in Christ. As we'll see, some of them get a glimpse, a spark of it, but ultimately it's not there. So none of those in the three bad soils conditions are saved. So we're going to start on the path. This is verse 12. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. It's clear some people will outright reject the good news of the gospel. They either believe there is no God, or they wouldn't rule out the existence of a God, but they're just not convinced. Or there may be some other 
uh, form of that where they just don't believe in this quote-unquote Jesus stuff. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. Think back to why Jesus spoke in parables. It was intentionally to prevent the crowd from perceiving and understanding. Otherwise, they would have, like I said, turned and been forgiven. That's straight out of Isaiah. If you are familiar with your Bible, you know that the Jewish spiritual leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, hated Jesus more and more as time got closer to the cross. And again, this was intentional for them to hate Jesus so that they would have him crucified on the cross. Again, looking at that big picture. So let's reread this, verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, in my own personal belief and the position here at Redemption Hill, we believe in the sovereignty of God. And what it states in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not man's will, but his will. And it was God's will that the secrets of the kingdom of God be withheld from the many and only shared with the few, his disciples. Let me also add that nothing happens outside of God's will. According to Ephesians 1.1, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his, the counsel of his will. Notice the words, all things according to the counsel of his will. So let me repeat this. Nothing happens outside the will of the Father, but only the things that he allows to happen. In verse 12 of Luke, God allows the devil to steal the word of the, from certain people's hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Remember, I said this is going to be a weighty text, and it is. We're all sinners. We all deserve condemnation. And as is stated in the text, some will, will be allowed to remain in that condemnation and not be saved. And that included the Pharisees and Sadducees, at least most of them, if not, uh, not most of them. But what about in today's time? You know, it's, it's still, this is a text that applies to us today, like I stated. And, I, I, and a recent example would be that uh, of a well-known atheist that you guys may be familiar with, Christopher Hitchens. He was a person that debated a lot of Christian leaders out there on the existence of God, on whether really or not there is a God. This person, Christopher Hitchens, he died in December 2011. And so I went online to see if I could find any quotes of the you know, last words uh, from him. And while I didn't find anything specific, I did find one article written about him, and it stated, they weren't, I found Jesus. So apparently, he was a man who had a hardened and defiant heart towards God to the end. Why? I don't know. I can't answer that. Again, life from our view is messy, and we won't have the answer. But I can say it's sad that he was not saved. Continuing on the second bad soil, the rocky ground. Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Now, Luke uses the word rock. The other Gospels use rocky ground. The idea here is that there's a thin layer of soil on top of a rocky base. 
So when the seed is planted in that soil, it's allowed to grow a little bit. There's some moisture in that soil, so the plants do develop, and the, some root base does develop. But as the hotter season approaches, and that moisture evaporates from that thin layer of soil, as well as any, any moisture that was available growing into that plant, it's going to dry up quickly. There's no root base to go down deep to get more, so, uh, more moisture from down below. So as that heat comes, as the time of testing comes, they wither and dry up and die. So referring to the Bible, there's actually an example of that in here too. There's an example where many of the disciples and followers of Jesus joined early on, but when things got too tough for them, during time of testing, they actually walked away. Now, I'm going to save some time. I'm going to kind of cut to the chase and dive into the middle of the context here. Uh, and this is where Jesus made it known to the Jewish leaders and, and his followers that he was the bread of life, that he came down from heaven as the bread of life for them. So turn with me to John 6. We're going to go through 60 through 66. Otherwise, it'll be on the back. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. See in parentheses there, it says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it would that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It was just something that they couldn't, couldn't grasp. So that we can clearly see that that group of followers that walked away from Christ fit this second soil condition they sprang up quickly, they followed Jesus, but because they had no strong root base or because the Father, as, as Jesus stated, the Father did not call them, they fell away when things became difficult for them to accept. Looking again at verses 64 through 65, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now again, it's stated that the people in the second soil condition believed for a while. They believed in their head. It, it was knowledge in their head, but it wasn't in their hearts. That's where that root needs to grow strong, in the heart. So they weren't true believers. If we turn back to 65, again, I'm just repeating what 65 says. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So Jesus himself is pointing to the evidence of the sovereignty of God. And that, that, when he said that, this is why I told you, that's from John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The analogy of this second bad soil condition also applies for us today as much as it did back then. We see men uh, in positions as pastors who have walked away from the faith. Uh, and there's a, another example here. A, a man named Dan Barker 
was an ordained minister from 1975 to 1984. And he, he states that he believed in Jesus as his savior. He, he believed that he confessed his sins. And he believed that the Bible was inerrant. And he did ministry throughout U.S. and Mexico during that 75 to 84 time period. But at some point in his ministry, questions started coming in, creeping into his, his life about the inerrancy of the Bible. And he started questioning it more and more. And he ended up questioning it to the point where he no longer believed the Bible as a source of truth. And sadly, his disbelief shifted his mindset, and now he proclaims to be an atheist. And he, too, is a strong debater against the existence of God. This is truly a sad and weighty thought. Going to the third bad soil, the thorns. As for those who fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, and as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Cares and riches and pleasures. I mean, that sounds familiar. If we go back to John 6, verses 67 through 71, so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And, and what did Judas betray Jesus for? Thirty pieces of silver. He had more cares for the, the riches and pleasures of the world over Jesus. But, but let's not overlook the idea that God specifically chose Judas to betray Jesus. Again, thinking that bigger picture, Jesus was sent in the world to die on the cross. So Judas played that part to get Jesus to the cross for the greater good of, of what God's plan was. This third, third soil condition can remind, remind me today of kind of the, the lukewarm, middle-of-the-road, nominal so-called Christian or pseudo-Christian, if you want. They claim to know who Jesus is in their head. They claim to believe that in what he did for them. But yet their lifestyle is no different from the rest of the worldly culture. Rather than living for Christ, they live for themselves. They are more concerned with their own happiness and pleasures of life than that, is, that which is honoring to God. There's another recent pastor, I'm not going to name names, who it's in a state south of Iowa here, where he decided to walk away from his family and, and from the church as well for an extramarital affair. And it resulted in a broken marriage and the church trying to pick up the pieces. I mean, it's, all of three of these soil conditions are sad. Again, it goes back to the idea that life is messy. Life is, life is hurtful here. We're almost done. We're getting to the good soil now. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Notice that being a true believer, like I stated earlier, it's not just having a head knowledge that Jesus died, for your, your, uh, died on the cross for your sins. It's that you hold it fast with an honest and good heart. And there is a difference there. God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want you to have head knowledge of him. 
He wants you to, to grab it and hold on to it in your heart. So it, it's a heart condition. And it's like those 11 disciples after the betrayal by Judas that, who truly believed. Or when, during the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved when they finally realized and were able to believe and understand and repent. And the numbers are going to continue to grow. We've had a whole host of numbers at states in the Bible that continue to come to Christ. And we've seen in our lives more and more people coming to Christ. And that is something truly to be praising God for. Let me just throw this out there as well. When people who are truly saved go through life, it's not perfect for us. It's not easy. Life is still messy. Again, we're in a world that's full of broken and hurting people. And as Jesus stated, he did not come uh, to save the, the healthy. He says, those who are, are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So we are all sinners. And we all come with our own different sin struggles. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior with an honest and good heart, then you have been called and have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But with true faith leads to true repentance. That doesn't mean that someone still won't struggle with sin, though, particularly some type of besetting sin that may be really a struggle for them. And that's something that needs to be worked out. And that's the, that's the whole point and process of sanctification is to be trying to run the race to become more Christ-like. I want to state one thing here, though, too. This parable is not speaking about true believers losing their salvation. Right? Let me repeat that. This is not referring to true believers losing their salvation. We get that confidence from the Bible. In John 6, 37-39, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's verse 37. Don't miss that last part. I will never cast out. In verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I mean, there's some solid assurance right there. As believers, we should have that assurance all right, so let me start to wrap this up. And like I stated, this text is weighty, and it can be particularly hard to hear if you have a family member or a friend who is not saved. And I don't believe I'd be wrong in saying that we all have family members or friends that are not saved. <clears throat> but I also want you to hear me say this, that while this is a warning that we should take to heart, it is not a message of hopelessness. This is not a message of thinking that those who are lost right now will stay lost. We don't know that, and we can't say that. Aside from death, there is no time limit or time constraint on when someone can become a believer. We have people coming to Christ at all stages of life, either early on, midlife, or at the end of life. People are always getting saved. And that is something to be, to be holding on tight to as well and the power of prayer and praying for those people. Okay, last part, and I promise we're going to start wrapping this up. 
people all around us may be claiming to be Christians, but neither myself nor anyone can really say for certain, with certainty that someone is saved just by their words. In, in, except for what said, it's stated in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, true believers will bear fruit with patience. So see, there we can see there's some evidence that we should see, or maybe even a lack of evidence, if you will, as an indicator of whether or not someone may be saved or, or not saved. And if we look in Galatians 5, verses 23 to 24, uh, we can see evidence of what that fruit may look like. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All right. So what do we do with this? Well, I would say for those who are not believers... We need to remember that we're all sinners, and we all deserve death and judgment. But because of God's love, he sent his son to pay our penalty. And salvation is a free gift because of what Jesus did by, by faith. And that, that, that gift that is free is available to all of us that are, that are not believers. So I would ask that if you're not a believer, I'd ask that you'd seek after God. Don't resist him if you feel like he's calling you, but run to him. Seek repentance and seek his forgiveness. And if you were to have any questions or doubts or needing to talk to someone, we would, we would welcome that opportunity to talk with you. Now, if you are a believer or think you are a believer, I'd ask that you'd look at your life. Take an inventory of your heart. Again, salvation is a free gift, but it's not a free ticket to ride with no change. God doesn't want a bunch of middle-of-the-road, immature, infant-style believers who never seek after him. Our goal as a believer is to become more and more Christ-like every day. And to seek him and keep God above everything. So we need to continually work out our salvation through the refining sanctification process and producing that fruit. So my challenge for you is to run that race strong. Don't stop. Don't slide backwards. Keep moving forward. As it states in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, I'm going to close.